Hey, welcome back to the Back to One's podcast. I'm sitting here with Alan Harmon, the chairman of the Directors Guild of Canada. Say hi, Alan. Hi. How are you doing today? I'm good, Julie. Thank you. For clarification, the chairman of the Directors Guild of Canada, BC District Council. So the guild is national, and there are seven district councils. Uh, you've got Ontario, Quebec, uh, the Atlantic provinces are conjoined, conjoined as one. Manitoba is its own, Saskatchewan is its own, Alberta is its own, and BC is its own district councils. So I'm the BC district chair. Amazing. Mm. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day to, to come and chat with us on this. Um, you're, you're welcome. It's fun to talk. <laughs> Indeed. So I guess to start with, in your own words, what is the DGC? Well, the Directors Guild is a, is a union, basically. It's a guild that's organized to protect workers, to bargain for them collectively, to um, take its assets and, and um, compile them in ways that uh, will create pensions for our members and um, health and welfare programs for our members, and, you know, uh, uh, vacation pay, things like that. So we're organized to bargain for our members collectively to get the, uh, the standards uh, that, that we feel that they're you know, worthy of and entitled to, should be entitled to, and, um, and also to represent them in cases whereby they maybe need representation. Okay. In case a collective agreement is broken egregiously, uh, they might need to grieve, they might need our support and our legal uh, team in order to get behind them, in order to protect them uh, professionally. So definitely a, a big goal for anybody who's out there thinking about becoming a director, working locations, working as an AD, definitely something you want to be a part of. Yeah, I think if you want to split it into, because we, we had a sort of a conversation briefly before we started, so I can jump into the swim here a little bit, I think, Julie. The, um, the, the concepts of being an assistant director, a location manager, um, probably to a great degree the production manager as well, um, those categories really require your traditional enter at the bottom and work your way up. Your director category doesn't. You, you know, if you're going to be a, a known assistant director uh, in the world, or even if it's just to say you wanted to be a great assistant director in BC, or uh, broaden that scope and be a great assistant director in Canada, or broaden that scope and be a great assistant uh, director on the world stage, of which we have several in our in our council, you're going to need to basically uh, prove that you can do it by starting at the bottom and working your way up. The PA positions, certainly at the very least, the uh, training assistant director position, and then the third assistant, the second assistant, and first. That was my path, by the way, just so you, you know, just to be clear. Um, you do not, on the directing side, need to basically uh, do any of those, you know, hoops. Uh, directors come at their jobs from all different you know, perspectives, lays of the land. Sir, some of them, like myself, come up through the AD department and become directors. Some know people and can become directors. Some can write scripts that they own and become directors. Once a production company wants to go into production making your film, or if they're a, a television series production company, uh, and their signatory means signed to the guild, uh, in this case to our, our contract, which is in BC, or the standard agreement, which is in the rest of the country, 
except for Quebec, which has several of their own <laughs> contracts. As long as there's a production company that wants to sign a director member to their production uh, and they're signatory to our collective agreement, then all that needs to happen magically for that director person is to uh, apply with their uh, membership application, pay the entries fee to get in, and, and they become a full member. Uh, it's, it's the only category like that in, in the Guild. Mm-hmm. There's also uh, the option for emerging filmmakers uh, releasing films to uh, film festivals as well. Is there where how many minutes is it where someone can apply to the DGC after? Well, that's a good question. I, <laughs> off the top of my head, I don't have that. I believe it might. I don't want to mislead. Um, those are the sorts of little details that sometimes I remember them, sometimes I don't. I think in order to be a, if you wanted to compile, you know, your your resume and the number of minutes that you have been able to accrue with productions like the short films or whatnot in order to be a member of the organization without going through a signatory production company, I'd have to, I'd have to, let me get back to you. I want to be, I want to, I want to give you that right, uh, the right information because, um, if we could, uh, as an addendum to this conversation, mm-hmm. I'll get you that number and we'll be able to say, okay, for those of you who are listening and interested, what he should have known off the top of his head, but didn't <laughs> was this X number of minutes. It's, you know, mm-hmm. somewhere between 40 and 80, something like that. Mm-hmm. And basically a filmmaker can, can go about making a film directed and submitted to these film festivals in order to basically bypass the um, going through a signatory production company or or spending the time on set. Yeah, there is there is that outside you know uh, um, alternative, right? You can do you can go about membership that way, or you can do it you know the more traditional way, which is to you know be hired. Um, but I do believe you're right in terms of you know plowing some fertile ground here in order to get a, a director's um, career started uh, to be able to do as much as you can on your own and to be able to convince as many festivals as you can on your own that your films are worthy of being seen at festivals and compiling that uh, will certainly get the attention of our of our membership committee, which works out of the national organization, which is currently in Toronto. Brilliant. Yeah, no, I definitely want to add an, an addendum to this uh, about how many, yeah, yeah. how many minutes and also um, kind of the number of film festivals are that out there that the DGC considers for that. Oh, th- that that's almost countless. I know it's not countless, but it's as long as your arm. I mean, you, you can get into a ton of different kinds of festivals that we would accredit for, you know, for this kind of uh, application. There's just a bunch of them out there. Too long, too many to mention in the podcast, right? Mm-hmm. You can go to our website nationally, I think, and get this information too without necessarily being a member. You can get um, for your audience that, that it doesn't have membership that might be interested in membership there's there's this information is on the directors guild of canada national website mm-hmm. under membership yeah no i find that a really exciting opportunity for young filmmakers who rather than than sit around going please somebody pick me for this they can get going and make their own thing and and push to make that happen for themselves I think you make a really good point because the concept that people sit around and wait for someone to say please pick me for this uh, it's a lonely dark uninhabited room that people sit in when when that's what they're hoping for uh it doesn't happen 
right? I mean, the, the jobs for directing are already sought after. The, they're really, in a way, they're considered to be glamorous jobs. And of those people that are, you know, uh, director material, you know, the types of people that really can and should be directors, they have to work very hard, sometimes for very long periods of time, to um, to get the attention of the people that they need to get the attention of in order to get these jobs. And a lot of people are trying to do it. Mm-hmm. So this just opens up a whole new window of opportunity that they can take when uh, when working that way up that ladder. Yeah, it's good. Also, you, we wouldn't be having this conversation to the depth that we're having it with regard to people being able to emerge, so to speak, uh, from nowhere um, even 20 years ago. You know, until the creation of, you know, uh, high-definition video, um, really good quality video, you, you had to make films with film. And films with film are expensive. Film was expensive. Processing was uh, expensive. Everything to do with post-production and film was expensive. Uh, whereas now, if you've got a good idea in an iPhone, you might just be able to make something that gets people's attention. Not that different from what Jim Jarmusch did early in his career when he made you know, Stranger Than Paradise using, I don't know, short ends or shooting Stranger Than Paradise in, in a series of nine-minute masters you know, and had a 90-minute movie when he was done, caught the world's attention. That's a sort of lightning-in-a-bottle approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, uh, you know, Jim Jarmusch was really uh, caught, caught the attention of everybody that was working in film. I remember I was working in film at the time, the early 80s, mid-80s. And um, since then now, if you wanted to be the next Jim Jarmusch, you have to get in line with the millions of other people that have the same iPhones and the same ideas. So although technology has made it easier for us to, to, um, to get out there and make films without having to, to, to go to the expense, um, you, you, you're, you're in competition with everybody that's got, you know, so much as like a, you know, like a handicam. <laughs> Is that still a term, handicam? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't kind know. Of. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Sort of. It'd be pretty, re- be pretty retro, <laughs> wouldn't it? I think I had a handicam when my kids were like in like grade school. Yeah. yeah. So what? Uh, what do you personally think is a good way for people to stand out from all the white noise and? make something that uh, really stands out from the crowd? Well, that's an interesting question, and I don't think I, I'm equipped with the answer because I don't think about it all that much. You know, I'm entrenched in a, in a 40-year career now, going into my 41st year, where I have to say that a lot of the success or, or lack thereof is due to a lot of what I've done to prepare myself and or not. So, you know, I'm getting, you know, uh, resonance in some areas that surprise me and not resonance in other areas. It's sort of the nature of the business. So having someone stand out, you know, in this current climate, um, I, I don't know that I've got the kind of advice other than in my sort of in my experience with actors and with directors, the, the highly creative side of, of filmmaking, um, my deep philosophical belief is that you have it or you don't. And for the most part, people who wonder if they have it can give it a shot and find out. And with with some success, they might actually be able to, um, you know, garner some success and get some get somewhere with their career. But what those venues are that you, where you could place a film, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think that I, I have a huge sort of like admiration and kind of a, a, a like a, a simmering passion for short films. I really like the medium 
I like it because it's it's a different medium than feature films and television. Even though if it wants to, any short film can look like a feature. It can look like a television show. It can look like anything it wants. Um, so I have a lot of passion for what you know the short films can accomplish for people on the creative side. A really good short film could take a you know an emerging, if we want to call them that, filmmaker into a good place with regard to notice. Um, but you know, I, I you know I'm doing this for 40 years. I, I can remember a list again longer than your arm of people that had great short films that I, we never heard from again. It's a very very because it's not just a you know a creative enterprise that Picasso was a brilliant artist and all Picasso needed was materials and a barn. Uh, it's not the case with anything you do in filmmaking. You need colleagues. You need financing. You need you know all kinds of variables that have to be put together in order to accomplish your goal. So, um, you know, there are great one-off films and short films that people have made that, that they couldn't go on to make a career out of it. It's, it's also a free marketplace enterprise, right? So mm-hmm. you've got to succeed, and by that, you've got to make money for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and definitely I think as a young filmmaker myself, there's always that struggle of, I want to make something. How do I? How do I make it stand out? How do I not go completely broke making something? And I'm always looking for things that I can kind of try to substitute in for that extra bit of capital that I maybe don't have, or that extra piece of equipment that I maybe don't have. And uh, finding training in any way that I can to to help bolster my films without necessarily spending the money on, you know, a, a steady cam or 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 extra lights, finding the ways that I can cheat around those to make a film that still tells a riveting story but doesn't have that high overhead has been important, I think, in, in getting started and getting established. Um, and I really think that it comes back a lot to to a lot of the work that you do in the writing stage, in your actor's prep, in the directing stage, because those things don't necessarily take the most capital. They take a lot of training and, training and attention to detail and careful, careful re- revision and more time than anybody's probably happy spending on them. Um, but definitely I feel like that helps me carry a film through when I don't necessarily have the funding that I want to make it. Yeah, and, you know, that's all, that's really well said, and, and I think you're on point with where you're trying to head with regard to the you know these questions and and with your career and I'll just tell you you, it's not going to be any different with success um, because when you're making a three million dollar movie for television that's currently the the going rate you know most of your independence can can get done at that at that level as well but when you're making any kind of uh, a movie under the currently let's use the 2018 model if you're under five million dollars you're always going to be up against exactly what you're talking about and you could be talking about trying to make a film for fifty thousand dollars for all i know you could be trying to talk you could be talking about trying to make one for 15 or twenty thousand dollars it doesn't get any different when you've got a three million dollar budget four million dollar budget five million dollar budget when you shoot a movie for three million dollars what you want is for the people that are out there that are going to be, you know, scrutinizing your work. You want for them to think you made it for four. And if you've got four, you want them to think that you made it for five. So the game doesn't change with regard to making the most, maximizing, you know, um, the effect that you can get out of your filmmaking with your technique, your processes, your your decisions. 
um, in your revisions is a good word for you know what we all do. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get any different until you get to you know be the director of the revenant. And and with due respect, if you got 150 million dollars to make the revenant, you can make as many mistakes as you want. Not to say that that director did. I, I think it's a brilliant film. Probably the wrong choice. You know, you, you got you got movies made for 75, 100 million dollars, where I know that they're not necessarily successful financially. But for whatever reason, because $75 million allows you to make a lot of mistakes if you want to, a lot of mistakes generally are made. Money's wasted. Money's pissed away. Um, You're not going to want to piss away a $3 million budget because you're going to want it to look like four. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good opportunity for young filmmakers who are working with micro budgets at this at this moment to be honing those skills because, I mean, if they carry with you down your career line, I mean, why not get really good at it early and uh, cross your fingers and embark on the creative marathon? Agreed. <laughs> um, and, I mean, the DGC is doing a lot to support emerging filmmakers. I hear you've got an exciting new awards program as of last year? Yes, it, it, it was in, it's in its first year. So the inaugural program started up last September, October, when the scripts were submitted it's for members only, um, members of the Directors Guild, BC District Council. The award is $30,000 in cash, and we also know a lot of the suppliers, so we give them a call and say, listen, you know, this is us. Our, our members are out there in the form of production managers and assistant directors, and they're working, and they're keeping your gear you know, working, uh, can you afford, you know, a few days of, of, you know, in-kind services? So there's a fair amount of in-kind services for these two awards. One is for the emerging filmmaker. The other one is for the legacy because we didn't really want to just say um, emerging filmmakers. If you take a look around, there's an awful lot happening for emerging filmmakers, right? It just seems to be on everybody's lips. It just seems to be like a... You know, uh, you know, a, a kind of a really popular concept that will give money all across the country and the world to emerging filmmakers. Um, having said that, because our membership is made up of everyone from from people that have done 150 days worth of work to people who have 45 years experience, so we decided to, uh, you know, uh, bifurcate, you know, a sixty thousand dollar give into two uh, streams. One would be the emerging, and the other one would be for the legacy, meaning a, a, an already established senior member of, um, uh, of the organization, someone who has a track record, a minimum of one television episode or their own feature film. If you've got only one or two short films, you can put yourself in the legacy or into the um, emerging category and compete in that stream. So we had we had a comp- competition, and I, I don't know what we wound up with, 17 or 18 f- scripts total between the two um, uh, categories. And it was really fun, um, and so we're in the midst of it. We, we, um, we got an internal jury to read... Uh, the legacy side and an internal jury to read, meeting directors, guild, BC district council members, to read the, um, uh, the, you know, the emerging side and the legacy side each, right? And they were to parse down their categories to three each. Mm-hmm. Uh, when, and these are just bare scripts. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, short films. And when they were done, um, their names are never to be known. 
um, the names of the applicants were redacted. The production team's names were redacted so that it couldn't be internally known to our jury, hey, this is so-and-so, and I know them, or they know so-and-so, and I'm voting for that. So there was it was completely blind. So when that process was done, um, we opened up the uh, event in... We t- we're going to do it again this year. We take the um, the week in between the last uh, American Football Conference championship game and the Super Bowl. That weekend in between, there's a week that where there's no football played in early fo- February. And very strategic. <laughs> it's very very strategic because we want you know because we've got members who we know are fans of football and it's a major event, the Super Bowl and those conference championships. And it's a weekend that not many people seem to be doing much of anything. So when we opened up the first uh, adjudication of these six different um, scripts, we did it in that week earlier this year before the Super Bowl, and we had 75, 80 people. The first time ever, we Van City, right? And a jury of three um, outside agents, right? None of them can be members of the Directors Guild. So you've got, you know, we had uh, three people that uh, distinguished in their own, you know, supply chain or an actress and that kind of thing. Um, and, and the six individuals had to pitch. And, and then that jury had to make, make up their minds about who was going to get the awards. And we put on a reception, and you know, we had some, you know, some beer and wine and some food for everybody that was involved, and we announced the winners. Uh, the winners in the... Um, uh, and then we've spent the year watching them go off and, you know, a lot, of, a lot of business administration stuff, right? We've got a great business administrator that we brought on board to make sure that all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed with regard to their contracts and their fiduciary responsibilities with the money that we're giving them. Um, and we put parameters, and, and uh, one of those is that there is to be no transfer of the rights of these films beyond the director. In each case, the director has 51% ownership of each of these films, and no one can, can they can't chip that away. So they can't give it to someone to help them produce it, who then takes it away successfully, turns it into a TV series, and, and, and their director winds up with no, mm-hmm. without a piece of the pie. So the first uh, one to cross the finish line just crossed the finish line two weeks ago. Wow. Uh, that's Beautiful Gun. That's Gabe Curry's film. And then Jeremy Lutner is going to camera on the legacy side to do his film, uh, which we will then uh, show this year, a week before the Super Bowl. We'll have our second, you know, uh, award show, and we'll show those two films before because now we've got one, right? So we'll show Excellent. those two films, yeah. And we're beginning the process of having our members now submit their their screenplay so we can adjudicate them and can do this again. And it's something that I, uh, you know, I was in part of grooming this and getting this accomplished and I uh, I'm, I'm pretty proud of it and I think we're all I've seen the beautiful gun and I think I think we're all we're, the standards set pretty high I believe I believe that our short film you know communities if not the best one of the one of the three or four best in the entire world mm-hmm. well I'm looking forward to seeing them good um, I want to touch on really quickly uh, something that I think is important and kind of on everybody's mind these days too uh, stepping back more into the the less the emerging director field, more just practicalities of set. I know that the DGC is um, dedicated to kind of ensuring a respectful workplace for everyone who's working on set. And uh, I was just wondering what uh, I know. You guys have a few a few things in place to help with that. If you wouldn't mind talking about that a bit. Yeah. No, I don't mind at all. We actually, actually, I. Um 
started as the chair most of these types of organizations that have boards and chairs, they, they have the same protocols they have to do with rules and regulations that uh, Robert's Rules, for instance, and our bylaws guide us in how we can operate. And when we've got um, any needs, any requirements, it could be as simple as, um, let's say we'd like to we simple. Then I was going to bring up the collective agreement. Uh, when, when you form committees and you've got a board and you form committees, the, the work of the committee is basically to inform the board so the board can set policy and move forward. And with regards to the respectful workplace, uh, as, as I mentioned, I came up from the bottom of the industry. So back in the late 70s and the early 80s, uh, I do remember uh, the lead motif was uh, everybody got degraded, everybody was dehumanized, everybody was yelled at, and then everybody was bought drinks at the end of the day. So it wasn't always a lose-lose, although you could go home feeling really disparaged. On I did on many, 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 many nights, you know, thinking that I don't know if I'm going to make this, I don't know if I'm going to cut it, I don't know if I can get to the end of this. I'm really getting beat up, but uh, looking around at all the guys my age that were, you know, doing the same thing, they were also getting beat up in camera they were getting beat up in electrics they were getting beat up in grips right there so it seemed to be like i say the leap motif so um I'm, I'm aware of it and uh, i always felt when i could be a supervisor position first ad which i was for many decades decades and a, and a director uh, and producer i could um I could I could handle situations a little better than I saw them handled on my way up, but I, I might be able to improve conditions for people by you know just being more informative, by being more organized, by getting good information out. You know, if the set's not falling apart because the information's good, then we can all have like a much better time. It can be collegial, but having stayed in the business all that time, um, I I did see um, you know that there were still People coming up, getting getting uh, degraded, you know, by by keys, by by people that they work for. Um, you, you'd occasionally get on a film set that you would hate, and and I would be resistant to, uh, because an executive or an, a producer would be the problem. And when that's a problem, that's a big problem because th then everyone tends to clam up and just try to get through it and just try to have the experience behind them and say, "Listen, I did the film, but I never want to work with that person again." Um, that didn't happen to be very often. It, it only happened a couple of three times in my in my whole experience where the problem was at the head. Uh, the problems for um, for film crews generally, with regard to dehumanizing treatment, generally seem to be within. Um, the individual categories, like I say, the grips might just have some, you know, a team that just beats the hell out of the new person, right? Uh, and so I, I, I was aware that people were, you know, still getting it handed to them, right? Um, a certain amount of it has to be accepted as um, the kind of traditional um, passing of the torch, if you will. Like it's a hard job. Don't think that it is isn't. Don't think it's going to be easy because these are hard jobs and they're sought after by lots of people. So there's going to be some hoops you're going to have to go through, but you shouldn't have to be uh, degraded and de dehumanized, and you shouldn't have to be belittled, you know, and made to feel small because uh, of, you know, whatever your shortcomings are, or, or in some cases maybe you don't even have shortcomings. You're just being picked on by somebody who's got an authority issue of their own. 
So to set the stage and set the table with that, uh, I had, when I was first chair five years ago, uh, it was very much a focus of mine to get, to get the, um, the culture addressed and to get some changes made along those lines. So I struck the Respectful Workplace Committee, um, a name that I can't take credit for <laughs> because all I could ever think of was like, what do I call this committee? I'm getting the shit beat out of me committee and I need help. And, and, and although we try to make light and, you know, it's a serious situation, the chair, Catherine Kretz, of that committee, she's been the chair of that committee for me for like five years. She takes it really very seriously. She came up with the Respectful Workplace Committee. I said, well, that's a good name. <laughs> it's the exact opposite of uh, what it is, you know, the reason for why we're, we're, uh, we're striking this committee. But at any rate, uh, that long story short, that committee, with a lot of legal help, I mean, a f fairly serious legal bill, nearing six figures, in order to make sure that we have the rights that we need to have in order to inform how we need to inform and culturally set the bar. And did we? it took us a lot of money to figure out whether we even had the right to have an anonymous hotline, which we do have. Um, but we have to use it correctly, right? We have, mm -hmm. to, we have to recognize when someone's being complained about because someone else might want to get rid of them, right? We, we have, like, safeguards for that, right? Um, but we want, and we have seen, and we have affected some change, or we have affected at least some acknowledgement uh, in some of these individual cases that we've taken from the hotline that uh, certain instances and certain instances that we've uncovered needed to be addressed, and we've addressed them, and, and we've, we've seen change. So... Culturally, we're just trying to put it out there that uh, we're not going to accept bullying and and uh, and get a cultural change with regard to that uh, that topic. And and I do believe that you know I've been I've directed three movies this year, all TV movies, and I, I'd be I'd be hard put to say that I saw any kind of behavior that happened on set that wasn't within what should be considered normal bounds of behavior. Right? Um, you hear somebody tired, snap at somebody. You know it's going to be okay. Um, if something's happening in the shadows, those are the different types of. Those are usually more. Um, I think those are more when we find sexual, you know, uh, misconduct and abuse. Those are usually in the shadows, those types of things, with the exception of maybe um, blue language uh, comedy and jokes and stuff like that. So I think we're, we're getting it corrected, um, you know, but it's, it's been a circus environment for filmmakers for going on 100 years. Um, filmmakers are generally circus people and generally kind of salty and kind of on the blue side. Uh, with their humor, and uh, it, it needed it needed a real strong spotlight in order to say we can do better, we can be better people, and and we can improve the and sanitize and improve the conditions for the people that we know that are working with us. So um, that's what that's what that's been all about, and and I haven't disbanded it. I mean, you have to every AGM every year you have to disband all of your committees and start them over, but it gives you an opportunity to. Um, either bring in some fresh, you know, horses to, to be on the committees or to bring in some uh, fresh opinions um, and to take stock of what the previous year's committee was able to, um, you know, assess and bring to the board in order to affect change. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's excellent. I think it's vital to open up those channels of support and communication. And um, who can use the hotline and when should they 
any member of the Directors Guild BC District Council can. And we were ahead, actually, of the curve on the national. Uh, and, and this is not a slight. It would sound like it to the national. But we put it on our radar five years ago and started to make some advances so that when um, the Harvey Weinstein uh you know, specific issue broke last year, right around that time, the beginning of the Me Too movement, uh, the national, as a national executive board, which I sit on as the BC District Council, sat somewhat in shock saying, like, what do we do? And I, I, I said, here, here's a start. I said, what we've done in BC, we have the Respectful Workplace Committee. Here's a start. We have a $60,000 bill we've paid to legal in order to steer us in the correct direction so that we, we're not offside with regard to what we can do. Uh, and and here's a start with regard to two or three speeches I've given at general membership meetings that have as a specific focus that we can't and should not be abusing people on film sets with regard to our treatment of them that you know people need to be you know treated respectfully and it's been taken from there and now the national has a hotline so um, anyone in our membership can use it um, if anyone who's not in our membership has a problem with one of our members. Our sister unions, you know, you got the other council, right? So you've got 891 for the technicians, you got, you know, 669 for the cinematographers, you got UBCP for the actors, and you've got the Teamsters and ACFC. So there's all your unions basically in town that uh, employ uh, film workers. Um, we can't necessarily get the word out to a, a technician from 891 as an example to say, did, a, did an AD give you a really hard time, an inappropriately hard time about something? Um, because if they did, you can call us. You can mm -hmm. call our business agent, right? Um, the hotline won't be available for you, but you can call us uh, directly, and we can help you investigate this. We can help you look into it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think it's excellent that the DGC is, is paying attention to providing that kind of support. And, uh, I do, too. Yeah, it's really good to hear. Yeah. Brilliant. So. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking uh, time out of your day to come and chat. And uh, Did you want to talk about directing at all? I would actually love to talk about directing if you don't have something important to rush back to. I didn't, I didn't know how much time you were going to need, so I, I thought I'd uh, just ramble. You can see that if you <laughs> ask me any question, I'm prepared to just go on at length. Fantastic. And I did. I do know that you had said you wanted to talk a little bit about directing, but I don't know what an, what angle you might like to explore. Well, I'd love to talk. I mean, you've been in it for forty years, mm. um, and I think I'd love to hear about the changes that you've you've seen in those forty years, and kind of where you might be able to see those kind of going off on a tangent into the future. What trends might be coming? Um, that we should be paying attention to. Well, you know, I, I was just talking about this to, I don't know, the other day we were having a conversation about it. There was a big change. It was a sea change in the business in the early 1990s when the writers who were getting, I think, rightfully tired of the, their kind of maltreatment in Hollywood because, you know, writers were just, you know, here, yeah, change this and come back like in an hour and I don't want to hear your opinion, just give me the pages. And I think the, the most writers who lived through that period will tell you that when they went to bargain with the producers in the early 90s, they took, as, as, I, as I understand it, they took as a, as a somewhat large, significant reduction in their royalties, uh, they took power as executive producers. Because I remember seeing writers suddenly show up on film sets, and uh, I was directing and ADing in the mid 1990s, as teams of people led by a showrunner, a new term, 
uh, at the time, um, other than an executive producer, producer, all of a sudden writers had, you know, someone there to say, no, we're in the room, we'll help you. Tell us that you can't afford to build this set, go to this location, have this many actors, and we'll, we'll go off, get the pages, and come back. But we're going to watch your decisions with regard to casting. We're going to watch how the set runs, and we're going to get involved in the uh, post-production and the edit. And as a consequence, it created um, some, again, you, you got some good uh, writer-directors who have come out of that period, and you got some that sort of wash out on the directing side. Because directing is really, a, a, it's specific and it's not specific, right? I mean, it's a really comprehensive job. And I, I'm of the belief, like I said earlier, that you're born to it or you're not. Like, like actors, you, you look at actors that really have their, their stuff, all they need is technique sometimes to know how to technically work around other actors on a film set and how to get a film shot as opposed to a stage play produced, right? Same thing with writers, you know, like some of them come, they take to it like a duct of water, they're fantastic at directing, and others are like, oh my God, I'm in a room with 80 people. I used to be in a room with myself, and maybe maybe somebody I could bounce my ideas off of. So it's very different, right? So that was a sea change, and uh, it was the beginning of a period of time, a sort of a dark period for directors where uh, you could have made t-shirts out of the slogan um, television is a producer's medium and feature film is a director's medium and people bought into it it's mythological absolutely there's no it doesn't hold water that has no, you can't you know verify this well who said I mean, but for about 10, 12 years, directors got used to coming in, doing an episodic, and walking away after two days in, in post-production saying, okay, that's it, they own it, they're going to just do whatever they want with it. And their voices were reduced, uh, while writers' voices were expanded. And then it was in about nine or ten years or so ago, you had some um, showrunners uh evolve into the position of, okay, you've got a writer's show running room, okay, at a, at a TV series. Uh, like Greg Ulantis was one of the early guys to do this. He did this at House, I think, and Bones, or one of those two, or both of them, where it was like, no, you're going to have a, a director showrunner, and now all the series do, right? You know, the hundreds in town, my son works on it, my daughter works on it, every show that they work on, with like Rob Thomas producing and stuff like that, they've got directorial showrunners that, that have the directorial aspects of the TV series in their sites. So there's another sea shift back in, in, in favor of the directors being able to be, and to me it all, it, it all speaks to the collegiality of what we do, right? Uh, we're going to be making uh, films together, we're not Picasso in a barn by ourselves, so we're going to make films together. Let's not disrespect the director's position to the point where they're just considered ancillary, you know, once the, you know, uh, physical production is down and you're into post-production. They're, they're important all the way through. So there's been, you know, a couple of really nice shifts that have, that have resulted, I think, in... Um, for lack of a better word, a more homogenous kind of a feel uh, in making, and I don't mean that in a bad way because homogeneity can sometimes be, you know, misconstrued, right? It can be, uh, American beer is homogenous, European beer is not. Which do you like better? <laughs> so True. using that example, I would say that, you know, to, to be able to just, you know, in a collegial atmosphere, which, which filmmaking has to be, 
you know, it's really good to have, uh, you know, all, all of the important key creative players all talking to each other in the same room at the same time. So that, that's been a major. Going forward, I don't know that I've ever been much of a visionary for how things are going to play out uh, with regard to, uh, you know, the access that everybody has now to being able to direct with very, very scant budgets based on, you know, comparatively to, to the, you know, the old days when you had to do film. Um, you know, you get some pretty interesting films out there made for, you know, 100000 to $800,000. Um, so that's just going to make it more. And also, you, you never did much outside of Hollywood. Uh, and you, at film centers outside of Hollywood, they were in this country. I mean, they were in New York, but they were also in uh, Toronto and Vancouver. Uh, and now you, you can set up shop anywhere and do some really interesting work, you know, in, in remote regions because you don't have to, you're not tied to, you know, the lab, you're not tied to the, to, to the structure uh, of the overhead, the studio and stuff like that. You can just, you know, head out somewhere and, and make some, and expose the world as your, as your location, you know, as opposed to shooting a back lot in Los Angeles and pretending you're in Lincoln, Nebraska. Nice. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Um, as a director with, like, so much history uh, in Vancouver, I know you have a lot of history in Toronto as well, but uh, specifically in Vancouver, um, I know you work with a lot of, of the actors in the industry here. What, uh, apart from, from when they just have it and they just go, what uh, do you love to see an actor show up on set prepared with? Yeah, lines know your lines uh and and then if you don't quite have the technique of knowing how, that you've just been blocked by the person you're sharing the scene with and your lighting is is shadowing you in an unattractive way and you don't know that um that's okay we'll we'll go again and and we'll tell you that um your experienced directors or uh, actors feel it you know so in other words if we're doing a scene together right now and it's your close up and i and i'm just sort of all over the place and and you know like i am with a microphone and my voice is changing well your light on you is now shadowing you in a way that just is going to make it unusable and if i'm unaware of that um, i should only be able to do that one or two times before i go oh i have to be careful um, that I'm not blocking Julie's light, and, and she has to be careful that she doesn't block mine. Those are purely technical things, which, you know, when it comes to... I was an actor in theater before I got involved in film back in the 70s. I, I trained for it in university in, in New York in the States, and I, I was the last person that wanted technique with regard to my stage work. I wanted to be free to, you know, to uncork what I had coming through, you know, the vessel... And and it, it appalls me, and I try to be sensitive to how technically we can make actors have to work for film, right? We can really box them. Think about this, think about that. Well, how about think about the character? No, I'm, I'm busy thinking about, you know, I've got the character, I've got the lines, but I'm worried about your light. I'm worried about, you know, the fact that, you know, there's a there's a PA sitting near the door locking up the studio eating a tuna fish sandwich. Right? I'm, I've got so many things going on here that I have to try to keep in mind. You know, hit your mark. Don't miss. You know, this is a, a long lens, and this is like low lighting. And it's only two two on the you know uh, on the shutter. So I gotta I gotta hit that mark, or if I miss it by six inches, I'm way out of focus. You know, that's just so much stuff. I just don't envy actors having to know the technical side. But the better they can be at that, the more valuable they are to the team. 
So technique. And there's, t- there's places in town that I understand. I've never been to one, but there's places where they teach that kind of technique. If you're a good actor, you don't need acting training. You just need technical training. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really can't take up any more of your day, I think. Um, Is that reasonably. enough? <laughs> I think that's... that's Tons of amazing things, and thank you for uh, for yeah sitting down and, and sharing with with uh, with the listeners. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you, Julia. Those are great questions. Keep it up. Good luck. <laughs> thank you, Ellen. All right. <laughs>